Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Blani. As regular listeners to Raise the Line know, I'm a big proponent of direct-to-consumer healthcare because it helps engage people in their own health. That's one reason I've been really looking forward to today's conversation with Dr. Kapil Parak, who has helped launch products that reach a billion people and has pioneered partnerships with a range of organizations, including the World Health Organization and the American Heart Association. Dr. Parak is senior medical lead at Google, where he has spent the last nine years leading projects to expand access to health information and help people achieve their fitness goals. Before Google, he served as a White House fellow and was the principal health advisor to the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Dr. Parak also currently sees patients part-time at the VA Medical Center in Washington, D.C., and serves as an adjunct associate professor at Georgetown and an adjunct assistant professor at Yale. As a clinician scientist, he has over 40 publications, many on psychosocial factors and heart disease, and his book, Searching for Health, was published by Johns Hopkins Press. Before we get into it, it's a very small world. We know many of the same people, including Garth Graham at YouTube Health, who was on the podcast, as well as my dean at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, Dr. Roy Ziegelstein, who, when we look back at the archives of email, actually connected Dr. Parak and me back in 2015 when Osmosis was just getting started. So it's kind of a nice circular moment here. But Dr. Parak, thanks for taking the time to be with us on the RaiseLine podcast. Oh, hey, thank you so much for the invite. I'm really glad to be here. And yeah, small world indeed. It's great to be reconnected. You know, before we started the podcast, you mentioned that Dr. Ziegelstein's had a, a big impact on your career. We know you're a cardiologist. Do you mind just telling our audience in your own words about what got you interested in a career in medicine and then cardiology? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Roy's just fantastic and a really key sort of person in my journey. But I think if I, if I may, I'll take you back sort of to the origin story and, and how I got here. So I grew up in Zambia, a small country in Southern Africa, and I did medical school there. And I saw a lot of people, you know, dying of preventable illnesses. So you treat somebody with cholera or malaria, they'd go back to where they live and get either that or some other disease and come right back. And so this idea of like retail medicine isn't sufficient sort of was an early sort of observation. And I, I initially thought I would go on to do global public health sort of based on what I was seeing and infectious disease. So came to the U.S. for further training. I was fortunate to get into Hopkins for a master's in public health, again, in the same international health sort of line. Figured I'd need some biostats and epi and stuff like that. So I, I did that as well to beef up my sort of technical skills. And then Roy, I, I met Roy when I was trying to figure out a, a residency spot. And he's like, look, all this stuff is great. I just want to make sure you have clinical skills. So he set up a, a rotation for me at Bayview. I did okay at that. And, and so he, he offered me a spot out of the match, which was remarkable at the time. So I had to pull myself out of the match and 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 I accepted. And I just said, look, I, I need a visa to get in and a specific type of visa. And Roy said, sure. And then fast forward, like a, a few months went by, I came to fill in the paperwork at the international office. And they're like, oh, you're that guy. I'm like, what guy? It's like, wait, you don't know? I'm like, know what? And, and they're like, well, Turns out Hopkins doesn't give out the kind of visa you wanted. And we told him, just give him the other one that like, he's like, and, and Roy said, no, he's made it very clear that he wants this specific type of visa. And he took my case sort of all the way to the top. They made a once in a, you know, university exception for me. And so I was very well known in that department. Roy never told me, like, I had no idea until that moment that he had done all of this for me. And, and of course, I thanked him, ended up in residency in internal medicine at Bayview. He's a program director at the time. 
and sort of had one of these mentoring sessions where I'm like, okay, I'm headed towards ID and global public health, and it's going to be amazing. He said, look, all that's great. And I, I know you grew up there, but have you actually ever worked in global public health? I'm like, no. He's like, why don't you do that? Just make sure you know it's for you and, and that you actually enjoy that work. I'm like, sure, I can do that. I found myself a gig in Zambia to go back and like, I'm go home for the summer. That's awesome. And so I'm like getting paid as a resident. I'm home. Like, this is amazing, except I hate global public health. <laughs> and, and honestly, I think the work was interesting. It was more that I found it hard to justify the ethics of it, where I would, I wanted a comfortable life and I knew that I would want like a certain salary and a certain way of living. And I felt like if my job is to like help all these poor people, you just take that money and give it to the village and they might be able to do more with it than I could with that salary. And I'm also honest enough with myself that I'm not so self-sacrificing, like, you know, some of the folks who truly like live with very few means just to support the community and things like that. So had that moment came back, I'm like, Roy, you were right. <laughs> I don't think I want to do this. And so he's like, well, what else do you like? And and then he gave me some really great advice. So he said, listen, I know you like to do something outside of medicine. You want to do this public health stuff. Maybe you'll end up doing research. Maybe you'll end up doing something else. Whatever that is, you do that. But what you do clinically, most often doesn't have to be directly related to that. So as a as his own example, he's a he started his career as a basic scientist. He had like publications in Cell and stuff like that. Super amazing stuff. And he decided to pursue cardiology. And then he moved over to then focus on depression and heart disease, psychosocial factors, things like that. And it didn't matter that he was a cardiologist doing that work. Like he could have been a nephrologist or a you know endocrinologist. That was his point. He said, so when choosing your clinical specialty, choose like the kind of patients that excite you. Like which rotations do you enjoy? What do you like doing? And so I said, I really like cardiology. Like that was honestly like one of the things I loved in medical school and coming to the US, like it's even more. And Roy's a cardiologist was one of my mentors as well as many others who were really fantastic. So I was like, well, do that. And so that is the story of how I ended up in cardiology and the role that Roy played in that journey. That's incredible. That's a really great story. I'm sure we'll send this podcast to him. I'm sure he's had a very similar impact on many people. And You've touched upon something about the importance of mentors here, as well as the importance of truly questioning your assumptions. Because you know, medicine is such a long journey that a lot of people begin med school with a very specific idea that they want to be, say, a, a neurosurgeon or a fill in the blank. And then by the third year or fourth year, they sort of very much change course based on the types of patients they're excited about seeing and also very much so in the mentors they have. So that's really good advice. Tell us more about your journey after becoming a cardiologist, you know, because you've had such an interesting group of companies you've worked with and for. Yeah, I, I feel like Roy, Roy was so instrumental, but I feel like if I'd gone potentially more career advice even early in my career, I wouldn't have had such a circuitous path. But I explored a lot of areas. So after Global Public Health, I'm like, okay, I got to get into cardiology fellowship. So I looked around for projects. Roy had some projects on depression, heart disease. So I wrote some papers around that. And there was some heart failure, which I'm interested in heart failure. So there were some papers around that. So I, I started getting involved in that work just to more do research, but also like just beef up my sort of application. Like, you know, as it, as you just said, medicine's a path. And so you, you have to get to the next rung and there's a series of check boxes that you sort of have to follow. And, and part of that also included getting my PhD in epidemiology in the time between residency and fellowship. I'd done some of the work during the, my master's. Well, that taught me is that I, I also don't like research. <laughs> 
So I was like, okay, at the end of at the end of that experience, I got into fellowship, I got into Hopkins, and I, I went to the main hospital for fellowship. And I was like, I, I don't want to, after I did my thesis, I didn't want to look at anything about depression ever again, or if possible, like not write papers, if I could help it. And, and that was probably too strong. I, I still do like some of that. I just knew it wasn't going to be my primary career. So then like fast forward, I, I finished cardiology fellowship. I, I focused in heart failure transplant because within cardiology, that was the stuff. Those are the kinds of patients I like to see. And there's a, a job opening at Bayview to, they, they need someone to start a heart failure program there. And I'm like fresh out of fellowship, but like everybody knows me. And so they're like, do you want this job? And I'm like, actually, I would love it because I, I think that'd be super interesting and fun. So I've, I've now looked at like global public health. Now I moved to cardiology not going to do academics. I'm going to try and like build this program. It was like amazing. It was really an amazing job. So I got the opportunity to build a program that focused on reducing heart failure readmissions. This was 2011 to 2013 timeframe. I got to go to a workshop at IDEO and learn about design thinking. I met some folks around Lean Startup. So I met like Eric Reese and Steve Blank and read all their stuff and talked to folks doing startups. I did like Lean Startup Machine, like all these things that, that people were doing. I got involved with the group that was doing Lean Six Sigma, and I'm like, hey, use my program as a pilot, and they did. And so, like, that was out of the Armstrong Institute. Peter Pronovos was great. He gave me some advice. So, like, anybody who would listen to me, I'm like, help me with my program. And, you know, they were great. They, they, Hopkins is such a wonderful place. But also just, like, the world at large. Like, there were folks from Spain who gave me advice on how to set up a clinic. Like, it was really a, a ton of fun. I did that for uh, two years, and I started hitting a ceiling of, like, like, there's only so much you can do at Hopkins, and then they sort of expect you to be more senior before you can do more meaningful work. And so I started a nonprofit. It was called Health for America. And the idea was that we would have a cadre of young students who would learn about design thinking and lean startup and all this stuff and become innovators. And primarily it's from this like idea that medical education is a tunnel. And can we expose these people to other ways of thinking and doing before they end up like 10 years in, out of fellowship, out the other end of that tunnel, and all of that creativity and passion and energy has been channeled into becoming a clinician or a clinician scientist or a clinician educator or a clinician researcher, you know, like the, the paths that currently exist. Honestly, we were, I think we were too early. We we're also on the East Coast in DC where like there wasn't as much of an ecosystem as on the West Coast. We started about the same time as Rock Health and didn't get anywhere near as, as exciting, as much traction as they did. So we did a few cohorts of trainees who sort of went through the program and, and then ultimately it got acquired by Mistar Health. And I was doing this all this work and, and I met somebody, this is serendipity now, and it's one of those things where, you know, you can't plan for these things, but sometimes life takes these moments. And, and he was like, look, all this stuff is great, but you should consider being a White House fellow. And this was at dinner with my wife, who was my co-founder in the nonprofit. And I'm like, ah, I don't know. And she's like, elbows me. She's like, he's interested. Tell more. And she's she's honestly the, the secret to a lot of my success and in many ways helped me when I migrated and like just taught me about the ways of the world and how America works and things like that. So anyway, this I got great advice. He he was really wonderful. He mentored me and I got into as as a White House fellow, which is amazing. He you mentioned earlier actually was a cardiology fellow with me, but served as a White House fellow years before. Mm. And so we have that in common as well. In any case, so I served a year as a White House Fellow, which is a phenomenal experience. I served in the VA. I was a, a turbulent year with, there was a government shutdown then, which is a much bigger deal. 
the secretary had to step down because there were a lot of backlogs from wait times and colonoscopy and some folks had passed as a result. I helped onboard the deputy secretary who'd never worked in health and is now in charge of this big health system. And, and you know, it's one of those things where, but I, I was I was able to do some really meaningful work and, and I was looking at what's next because I also knew government wasn't for me. It was, it, it felt very bureaucratic and slow and political and complicated and I didn't have the patience for it. Looking back, I, I probably could have stayed a little bit longer and had more impact, but you know, I had like maybe a hundred different coffee dates that year. And everyone was like, look, you're great to have coffee with you. You're so interesting. I don't know if I can give you a job. Like I want somebody who's done this for five years and then I'll give them that job. And like, you're not that guy. And so I met somebody who was at Google. It's like, I, I have no job for you, but I'm working on this project. Can you give me some advice? So I did. We talk every few weeks and it's like, eventually he's like, man, your advice is really helpful. Would you consider like joining us? I'm like, sure. So he like checks and he's like, well, we don't really hire doctors. I don't know how to do this. So can I hire you as a temp? You know, like there's these intern positions that we have. We'll just hire you as one of those. So I'd gone from being an assistant professor at Hopkins, director of heart failure, to being a White House fellow, to being a glorified intern at Google. <laughs> and everyone's like, you're going the wrong way. And yeah, <laughs> I, and yeah, I took the leap. I, I had to quit Hopkins. They wouldn't even give me an adjunct or anything. I was like, look, the rules are, if you leave, goodbye, you know, you you on your own. And so closed that door and I was an hourly employee at Google. So like none of the perks, like no paternity leave. I had to work extra hours in order to make up, like I, I worked double time for two weeks. So they gave me two weeks off to be with my daughter when she was born wow. and she was born on Cobra because we had no health insurance. <laughs> Your wife must've so, loved, loved this path. <laughs> oh my gosh. She's a saint. Like the, the, she, not only is she the reason for my success, but she puts up with my craziness and we've, I'm, I'm just really in more ways than then we have time to discuss. I'm, I'm really lucky to have her. In any case, that was almost nine years ago and I joined Search. We launched health knowledge panels, which is like essentially a summary of information. But it, what we launched was a graph underneath it. So that connects points like cough is connected to asthma, is connected to influenza. And so like when you, when you then type in influenza, you see all the details, but then when you type in cough and fever, you can see related conditions to that query because Google now understands how those conditions and symptoms and, and terms are connected. So we built that infrastructure. Then we internationalized it to yeah, Brazil, to India, to a whole bunch of places and then built more things on top of that. And that reaches billions of people every day now. So really cool work. And then sort of over over the years have, have done a, a bunch of things at Google, which, which has been a, a really interesting journey. And I think that's home. Like it's it's sort of like I've found my my passion around innovation, around digital health, this intersection of consumer and health, as you were saying. And, and it took a while. It took a lot of like trying different things out and being like, yeah, that's not for me. No, that's not for me either. Not that one. And it would have been nice to have figured this out sooner. But yeah, no, it's, I've been very lucky to end up where I am and, and it sort of has worked out. Yeah, no, it's an incredible, incredible journey. And I think right before we started recording this podcast, you mentioned, you know, when people ask you for advice, we might as well get into that question because we've talked about mentors, we've talked about <laughs> zigzag paths. And do you want to share, you know, your commentary on advice for our listeners, many of whom probably are questioning, do I want to be a researcher? Do I want to go into tech? Do I want to, you know, practice full time all the time? You know, what, what, you, what would you say to them? Those are all great questions. The, the, one of the, the key quotes that I learned, so I get, I get about Every few weeks, somebody reaches out like, hey, I need career advice. I'm looking for a job. I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing. 
one of the things I live by is autobiography is not advice. I read that somewhere. I can't claim any benefit, any any insight from that except I liked it. And you know, like people are like, hey, tell me your story. Maybe I can get something out of it. Like, tell me what you're dealing with, and I'll I'll give you the parts of my story that might make sense, and as well as some advice and and things. Like you know, it's it's wonderful to have, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to give my story and like talk and like you know you feel important and cool, but it doesn't really help people as they're trying to navigate things, right? So. So some of the, the common piece of advice that I ended up giving are around try different things. So like many times, like you sort of have this set path and and don't be afraid to fail. So somebody else said this, again, take no credit for it, but risk, life rewards risk disproportionately. And we are, you and I are fortunate to be in a place where you could take a risk with osmosis and if it went great, that's great. If it completely went berserk, you can go back to medical school, you can get a job at McKinsey, like you could do something else, right? And so we're so privileged that when we take risks, the reward is massive. And if we fail, we learn something and we still have a place to land. And, and part of why I say that we're fortunate to do that is the inverse is also true. And there's this great piece in the Atlantic about folks who are underprivileged, right? Like, you work an hourly job, your car breaks down, then you get fired because you were late to work a couple of times. Now you can't afford to repair your car. Now you can't get to work. And like that spirals backwards and that's really terrible. And it is what it is. But the point being that knowing this, we're all in medicine taught to be risk averse and conservative. And so I think appropriately and thoughtfully taking, don't go to Vegas, and say, no, Kapil said, take risk. But appropriately taking risks with your career, trying new things, I think that's something worth worth doing. So that's sort of one. And the second is something you you, you touched upon, which and we just talked about, which is around like, hey, do I want to be a clinician or not? I think that's a really, really important question. If you decide you want it, you don't have to be a clinician to have an impact on health, osmosis being a great example. But if you want to be a clinician, then my advice is always do that first and do that really well. So like, don't try to double dip like, oh, I'm going to be coding on the side and learning how to take care of heart failure. And then I'll code on the side and I'll like become a cardiologist. Like, no, that just doesn't work. Like really become a good doctor, because if you mess that up, that's somebody's life you're dealing with. And you, it's hard to overestimate how much damage you can do by, by, you know, I've, I've lost friends from medical errors. Like it's, it's terrible. So if you're going to be a doctor, then do it right. And then focus on that and then do the next thing, right? Like you might do a little stuff on the side, maybe take an elective or two, just make sure, try different things out, make sure you're in the right path, but do that really well. And, and so that's like the other piece of advice I have. Like, so when that fork happens, choose that. And then you, and you can choose what you're passionate about in terms of your clinical work, what kind of patients you like to see and all that. But, but if you do decide to do, be a doctor, be a good doctor. Yeah, that's incredible. That's great advice, and, and actually very timely because as you as you know, I've I've come back to med school myself since Elsevier bought Osmosis. I've had more time to consider what's next, and that's largely why I've come back. I want to dive into some of the work at Google as well, just things you've been involved with. So we've we've been very fortunate to get to know many of the clinicians and and other people working in health at Google. Just yesterday, I mentioned I met up with Michael Howell, chief clinical officer there at this AI Med conference, Garth Graham's wonderful. And then the team, I'm sure you worked with some of them, like Claudia Mar on the on the search panels. It's very, very cool work. And the scale of impact is what gets us really excited that you know we we basically grew on YouTube 
right? That's how Osmosis became popular is, you know, 2.8 million YouTube subscribers. So one aspect we learned about this during COVID especially is this idea of health literacy, patient education, and combating misinformation and disinformation. Do you want to comment a bit about some of that, especially in the, in the you know, this is a very big question, but in the age of, you know, generative AI, when more content is being produced than we can handle, I thought there was too much content years ago, let alone like now. How, how are you thinking about it personally or whatever you can share about Google? Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I can't speak on behalf of Google. I have to give you my perspective. So I started writing a book. It's called Searching for Health four years before it was released. It was released last year or so, five years ago. And at that point, we had like a, a much simpler world. And the, the idea was like, hey, you get all this information online. It's very confusing. How do I like go talk to my doctor about this? And how can we empower people so they can have more meaningful conversations with their doctors? And it came from my personal sort of like disconnect between I see patients and like they get very confused with the stuff online and they're like not sure how to bring it up with me. On the other hand, I've like built products that's supposed to simplify that information and make it easier to access and still there's a gap. And, and the gap that I felt was that people don't really understand how doctors think, how to take what they find online and insert into a, a short interview with the doctor and there's such a big information gap between the two and so we provided a lot of tools and things to to make this happen ironically like i, I wrote my first chapter i showed my wife and she's like look you're great and everything but go talk to anna her friend and my eventual co-author she's like you need her help and so she she took all of these like dry ideas and like we found a whole bunch of anecdotes brought it to life and put in a bunch of tools got over her and something re references because it takes all the health literacy literature and makes it useful i can claim any credit for the original work i'm gonna try to take like the, you know we have like decades of work on this stuff some of it and and try and turn that into like useful things that people could use and we 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 published in like april of 21 which is like right in the middle of the pandemic and and now we've gone from this like relatively now looking back simple problem of like hey just a lot of information how do you take this to your doctor right like some of it is overwhelming but none of it is malicious at that time it wasn't quite like the same level of politicization there's there like misinformation and and active misinformation right like to to deliberately lead people in in directions that are unhelpful from various motivations so something it's a space that i've, I've sort of obviously long been interested in and, and have written about and and i agree a hundred percent with you that it's only going to get more and more sort of challenging i think we've historically relied upon organizations like the WHO and the CDC and public health bodies to be smart about this stuff and help us make sense of these complicated scientific things. I think the, the level of investment in health communication has been really under, it's just an area that's underinvested, right? Like it's it's vis-a-vis -vis the need, you know, most experts are great at talking to each other, right? Like not so great at communicating to the lay public. And I think there's now an increased recognition of the need to do that. So like more and more people are doing that or part of it, connecting the dots between experts and the lay public. And I, and I, my hope is that like much, as much as like generative AI it could add fuel to the misinformation fire, because now you can generate tons of content and make it super engaging because like the model knows how to do that and very clickbaity and all of that sort of stuff. There's an opportunity for experts to also use generative AI in a way that's engaging and useful that they didn't have before. So in the past, 
if you ask me about hypertension treatment, I'd be like, well, five different drugs and this one does this, but sometimes you want to use this one first. And then, oh, three paragraphs later and like eyes glaze over and, and I'm like, are you still talking about hypertension? Whereas now I could say, Bard, ChatGPT, whichever, pick your gender AI of choice. Here's a summary of the guidelines. Turn this into five bullet points. Make it funny. Make it interesting. Add some emojis. Boom. Like now you've got like in literally 10 minutes, any scientist who wants to get their message across can translate their science into engaging content and then proof it and be like, oh yeah, this makes sense, right? And, and if you think about like when we did this for knowledge panels back in the day when we launched, we had to have like the Mayo Clinic. First, we had to have a UX writer write this stuff. Then I read it as well as a whole bunch of doctors internally at Google to make sure it's legit. Then we had the Mayo Clinic I'll read that. And then we put it out in the world for like, because it was reaching billions of people. Now you could do that at, at scale, at speed with generative AI that anybody else has access to. So I'm hoping that if we're if we're smart and if we can use education platforms like Osmosis and others, we can use generative AI to close that gap rather than let it widen. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is definitely what motivates us. And I mentioned that we said the YouTube partnership has been incredible for us, not only for generating new content, like, you know, with, with Garth and team, we just started working on some rare disease content for this year of the Zebra initiative we've been doing, but also just the fact that there's community-driven and technology-driven translations and localizations, right? Like our main YouTube channel is 2.8 million subscribers, but a community of doctors and other health professionals in Vietnam created Osmosis Vietnamese and have translated a subset of our Vietnamese videos, not just the subtitles, but the text on the screen and the spoken audio. 100,000 subscribers to this channel, and we, we've done nothing. We just gave them the ability to do it. Now with Gen AI, what, what I'm excited about, if I, you know, if I can put a, a plug for you to take back to your colleagues at Google, I would love to like snap my fingers and or have Google snap its fingers and have all of our content in any language. I mean, I was born in Namibia, you're from Zambia. You go to these countries, like the English proficiency isn't as strong. And, but this content's important to reach, you know, whether it's community healthcare workers or a pregnant mother, whatever it may be. And so I, I would love for our content, trusted content to get to as many people as possible using these tools. And I think Google's a great, great force for good in that way. Yeah, and I mean, I love, you know, what you all are doing with video, right? Like, that's such a great way to get past literacy barriers, right? Like, you don't have to read a video, you just listen and watch. And so that's, that's, I do think I'm, by nature, I'm an optimist and an enthusiast. But I, in, in as much as like, I have that part of my brain, I also have the like, realist, like, clinician, PhD researcher, like, I, I can be critical about digital tools and, and criticize snake oil when I see it. But I do think like when you look at some of these technologies, right, like video, for example, like it legitimately has this ability to cross boundaries, barriers and, and have an, a real impact. So, again, technologies are tools and it's up to us. I think all too often medicine by the conservative nature of the field is slow to take advantage of these. And we're sort of being forced to, to move quicker. And, and I think if we do it well, that can be a good thing. Yeah. And, and that's why getting our audience proficient in what's happening because their patients, you know, when 23andMe came out with direct-to-consumer genetic tests, their patients would show up with, you know, this report, what the heck's a SNP? Does this mean I'm going to get breast cancer for sure? Like they didn't understand that and there weren't enough genetic counselors to go around. So being able to go and train, not only raise the line or raise the bar of what patients understand with health literacy, but also scale what 
health professionals can do in terms of explaining it is again what I think is possible through platforms like Google. Yeah, no, it's super exciting. It's a great time. So switching gears to the other part, which is remote patient monitoring, Fitbit, the work that you've done there. So a decade ago, my summer project when I was starting osmosis on the side, my summer project was working with Daniele Rigamonti. Do you know remember him from Hopkins? He's a neurosurgeon. Yeah, he's a, a mentor of mine, the kind of what Rosie Eaglestein is for you. Daniele Rigamonti has been for me, he's been on this podcast. And the project, we worked on several projects. One of them was slapping Fitbits and other activity commercial grade pedometers on patients with hydrocephalus and using that data to predict whether you know, their hydrocephalus would get worse and they'd see other symptoms. Clearly, you know, we've been talking about this for years. I saw you recently shared Mitesh Patel, another mutual contact of ours, his paper in Nature about hospital readmission rates and predicting that with Fitbit and other devices. You know, I'd love to hear more about kind of where you've seen the space, how the space has evolved in terms of remote patient monitoring and consumer health devices, and where do you think it's going in the next, you know, couple of years? Yeah, you know, I think I, I would elevate that a little bit beyond remote monitoring. I think there's a ton of opportunity for consumer devices, wearables, phones in in health and in Remote monitoring is sort of one aspect of it, but like you sort of think of population health at large, right? Like, so to answer your question on remote monitoring, I think where I see consumer data in that front is I think there's a careful distinction you have to make on appropriate use of data. So remote monitoring of vitals, like blood pressure, heart rate, these are medical grade devices that measure medical terms and, and parameters that clinicians are very comfortable dealing with, right? Like, your blood pressure is high, I know what to do with it. Your heart rate low, maybe cut down on a beta blocker, right? Like, and, and it's a very straightforward way of managing that. Whereas if your step count drops or if your sleep is erratic based on your consumer-grade wearable, whichever one it may be, whether it's Fitbit or not, one, that data is consumer-grade data. So it's not meant for clinical decision-making. And so its accuracy is lower. It's still useful, but it's not the same as a blood pressure from a blood pressure monitor, which, by the way, has its own problems. Right? Like blood pressure is not a perfect measure, as you well know. It sort of goes up and down. And so, you, but we're trained how to use that and in, in understand its limitations and, and its fidelity and so on and so forth. Most clinicians don't have the training on what to do with this consumer grade data. They don't understand it. And then two is, in my opinion, I think it's an incredibly powerful signal that's best used as a way to val like get more information. Your step count's down, something's up. Give them a call, see what's going on. Your sleep's disturbed, give them a call, see what's going on. And it might be that, hey, you know what? I had some friends in town, we went drinking a little too much and so I'm kind of hungover, that's what's going on. Okay, don't do that again, you know, take care, hydrate, whatever. Or I'm having chest pain, that's why I'm not walking around as much. Hmm, bigger problem, you should come in, let's talk. And so like, I do think this consumer grade data and consumer devices when it comes to remote monitoring are powerful not because the quality of data is phenomenal. I think it's the it's quite actually the opposite, the quantity of data. So most people will wear a Fitbit 24-7, charge it a few, you know, once a week or something because it's it's got a great battery life and sort of keep it on just for a long time. Whereas getting a heart failure patient that, you know, I would see to just get stand on a scale and get a blood pressure once a day We'd have nurses calling them to remind them and they don't like doing it because they look, don't like looking their weight or like it's inconvenient or whatever. And so you'd get like a couple of discrete, very high quality data points that were inconsistent. So it was much harder to 
understand what's happening with them over time. And so this is where like the larger volume of data, even though it's poor quality, could be useful. The analogy we I, I sometimes give is like smartphones and landlines. You have amazing signal on a landline. You just don't have it where you need it. Whereas you have a lot of poor signal, poor quality on a cell phone, but everyone uses cell phones because it's the convenience of having it all the time. So understanding what that data is, what it's what the regulations around it are and how you can use it in an appropriate way, I think is interesting. And once we get that done and we get the systems around it, I think we'll see really powerful things and we're trying to do some of that. So that's one part of it is remote monitoring, but then there's a whole bunch of other things, right? Like, so if you look at population health, there's stuff around just behavior change. So Fitbit helps people get more active, something that was invisible before sedentary time. Now you have steps, 10,000 steps, and people like recognize, oh man, I'm must be sitting a lot because I'm not taking many steps. And now it's just a Fitbit, your phones measure steps. It's sort of everywhere, right? Like it started with, with that, but it got popularized. And so you could use that to reduce sedentary time, which, you know, by the way, is one of the WHO guidelines and is associated with a whole ton of health benefits. So like all the behavior change around physical activity, sleep, stress, et cetera, to promote well-being at a population scale, like it have huge impact on disease prevention, so on. Then there's a whole bunch of work around. So, so that's like pop health, remote monitoring. Then there's a whole separate use of that data around predictions, which is different from remote monitoring. So when COVID rolled on, for example, there's a paper in, in Nature Medicine, which showed that Fitbit data could be used to predict the onset of symptoms a day before they actually happen, right? And so, and this will happen for more and more diseases over time. The one that's FDA cleared is around atrial fibrillation. So Fitbit can detect irregular heart rhythms. They did it in 455,000 people, the largest study of its kind. And they showed that we could predict when these irregular heart rhythms would happen and correlate that with atrial fibrillation on a diagnostic patch. And so it's not a diagnosis, it's a detection, but it's a prompt for a doctor to give a to prescribe a diagnostic tool like a patch and then make that diagnosis. So we can actually help prevent stroke if that's confirmed and they are put on treatment. So th there's all these different buckets of work around where you can take these consumer devices and make them useful. There's a work being done around recovery. So if you've had a heart attack, for example, we recommend cardiac rehab. And that's something that's been shown to reduce mortality and morbidity, readmissions, and those kinds of things, really important stuff, 30 years in the making. Like this has been a known thing. But cardiac rehab involves you coming in three times a week into a facility, getting, you know, doing some exercise under supervision and so on. It's very hard for people to do. And then when it was COVID, it was impossible to do. So then we actually partnered with some folks in Ireland and did this program where they got Fitbits and did the cardiac rehab remotely, showed some great results. And now we have a randomized control trial across three NHS trusts that's being done in partnership with the British Heart Foundation Data Science Center and funded by the NHS to study this at a, in a more rigorous way. We have a similar program that we I helped launch in Manipal, India, where we're doing this for post-surgery as well as for cardiac rehab. The list goes on, but you get the idea that you can take these consumer-grade tools and intelligently and appropriately use them in many different clinical and population health settings, but you just have to understand how to you know, what that data means and how to use it. Those are some great examples. And, and again, I think in this age of big data, we've been talking about big data for many decades now, but you know, it feels like the data has just gotten bigger and the, our ability to process it and draw inferences and do, you know, turn it into insights and prediction is, is even bigger. So we've, we've touched upon a couple of big things and we've already gone through the advice and I want to be respectful of your time. So what else would you like to share with our audience about what's top of mind for you? You know, you're still practicing, you wear multiple hats, you have this book, 
what what else is like you know keeping you active and excited these days? Yeah, I think that's funny. But I, I think for for your audience, I'd encourage them to uh, learn more. And you know, one of the things I I, I helped on the and Fitbit do is like we put up a page for physicians so that clinicians can learn about you know our partnerships with the WHO and the American Heart Association because we follow their guidelines and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine because our sort of tools help you get to those guidelines as well. And so there's a, a ton of science behind this. There are about 1,700 papers and counting that are published on Fitbit. And most people don't understand that that level of evidence that exists. And so as, as you embark in these careers, you yourself included, more and more patients will come to you. Hey, my device said I might have atrial fibrillation. What do you do with it? And I've seen, you know, when I when I presented at conferences, I've asked the question, so what do you do with that information? Do you just ignore it? And about like some hands will go up and say, yeah, we, we just ignore it. And then I say, or do you prescribe a blood thinner? And some hands will go up and I'll say, I hate to say this, but you all are, both sides are wrong, right? Like on the one hand, you don't want to ignore it because it's actually FDA clear and useful. And atrial fibrillation is a real disease that, that can have consequences like stroke. On the other hand, it's not a diagnostic tool. So you can't start prescribing a blood thinner on it. And somebody would be like, yeah, but I saw that single lead ECG that came from the device. It looked pretty good. I'm like, that's not what it's FDA cleared for. Like you still have to validate it with a FDA cleared medical grade device and, and use it appropriately. And we, we understand that level of nuance for other tools that we use. So we're capable of this, right? Like somebody comes into me and says, oh, doc, I wrote down my blood pressure readings for the last two weeks. And I take a quick glance at it. I'm like, oh yeah, take your lisinopril 10 and make it 20. Because I know how blood pressure machines work. I know that, yes, he's got a 10 numbers there, but you know, six or eight out of those 10 are above range. So that's meaningful enough for me. How far above range? Yeah, enough that I can increase his medicine. How much? Oh yeah, if I increase this medicine, X amount, that's how much of an effect I estimate to get. If somebody comes back with wearable data, you're like at a blank slate. Like it takes probably hours of reading to get to that 30 second conversation from review those data points and, and change the license and dose. That same amount of effort, if you put maybe not as much as blood pressure, but like some level of effort, if you put in understanding consumer data and those things, and we, certainly need to build the tools out for that, you'll be able to have similar conversations with your patients. And why is that important? So if you think about it, and this is true for wearable data, but also true for health information that people seek online. So somebody coming into your office with either stuff they found online or some data from their wearable or something like that is telling you, I care about my health. I'm investing in my health. I spent the time to put on this device, to look this information up online. Here, here's what I got. And then if you say, look, all that stuff's junk, let's talk about real medicine. Let's talk about your medications that we need to adjust because that's on my agenda. The patient's going to be like, that doctor doesn't care about me, right? But if you take the 30 seconds, like, oh, amazing. You pull this up. That's fantastic. Let's take a look. Yeah, you know, this doesn't apply to your condition. But I'll explain to you why. And da-da-da, right? Because you took the 30 seconds it took to look at the information they collected, whether it's the online information, whether it's wearable data, whatever it is, validate the work that they did, which is like they're investing in the health, and then take that energy and point it in the right direction. Be like, don't worry about the step counts. What I really need you to be doing, set a reminder for the medication so you don't skip those, and maybe check your blood pressure twice a week. And you know what? Your sleep's kind of off. So why don't you focus on like getting to bed every day at a reasonable hour, right? You validated them, pointed them in the right direction. 
And now they'll listen to you and, and you've built that relationship and they'll come back eager like, Doc, you told me to do these things. Here's where, here's where we're at. What's going on? So you, it's an opportunity and it's like a little bit of a judo move where you take their energy and put it in the right way as opposed to turning into a confrontation where like, I can't build for this stuff. I don't know how to make sense of it. I'm just going to do with what I'm comfortable doing, really what's more important, at least for me. So that, that's my, my sort of parting thoughts on how we think about these consumer tools, because we're just going to see more and more of them over time. I think that's great advice. I love that. The judo patient education, maybe that's a, a course or a video series we'll, we'll build. Because I, I agree, like a lot of clinicians I've met are fairly dismissive of patient-generated health data Whereas others maybe put too much stock in it. And you know, we all know about the worried well and cyberchondriacs. We've heard those terms. And it's, it's, it's nuanced. And I think you, you appropriately hit upon those nuances and it's good advice. Any last words? Any, anything else you want to share before we let you go for the day? No, this is fantastic. And, you know, I'm, I'm really excited for Osmosis as a platform because I do think you guys reach a ton of people. And so I'd love to collaborate on sort of wearable education. And I think over time you should have courses in Gen AI and like really bring bring clinicians up to speed on like the emerging sort of parts of technology as well as like sort of more traditional education. So yeah, grateful to be here and excited for where things are going. Absolutely. You're speaking my language. It's why we have you and other leaders on the podcast to get our students thinking more beyond step one, beyond NCLEX and thinking about, you know, the actual practice and delivery of medicine. So Dr. Prak, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, and more importantly, for the work that you've been doing across multiple very interesting roles to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. Likewise, thank you for the opportunity, and thank you for all the work you've done. Thank you. And with that, I'm Shiv Vivani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm-hmm.